morning I'm picking up again the series, Men of God in Strange Places. And I'm coming back from time to time to pick up different characters from the Old Testament. Not necessarily going to follow week by week on this, but there's so much in it that's of value to us as we continue the series. So Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make known to me your wisdom." Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Men of God in strange places. We already had a look at Elijah and Samson, and now we're looking at David. And one thing they have in common, God is allowing their exterior world to crumble, that their interior world, what's going on inside them, would be exposed in order that God would minister to that and bring transformation on the inside. That's why God always focuses on the inner life, what's going on inside. And a very healthy question always to ask is the red dot dot 
question. If you've heard any of this series, you'll know the red dot question. It comes from the idea you might arrive in a strange town and go to the city center, and, and having lost your way, and your little mobile sat-nav isn't working, and you want to know where you are, you go to a map, and you're very relieved when it says, red dot, you are here. And then you know any journey must begin from that point. So it is spiritually. One of the most important questions we could ask and should ask repeatedly is what's going on inside? Where am I, Lord? Where am I now? What's really happening inside me? And that's always how we come to God, as we are. No pretense, exposing to him what's really going on on the inside. God sees it anyway, but he wants us to acknowledge it because that's where God will begin with us. He wouldn't say, well, you should be over there, so you've got to get over there before I deal with you. No, he comes to right where we are, and he exposes that so that he can lead us to where he wants us to be. So when we ask the question, where are you, David? What's your red dot? We're very surprised. David is in a very strange place. We ask ourselves, how could this anointed man of God, one who is so close to the heart of God that the Bible describes him in every instance other than the one that is before us today, that's his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder that he committed and the lies and the deceit and the cover-up. In everything else, he was a man after God's own heart. I want you to know straight away that you are a man after God's own heart and you are a woman after God's own heart. You better believe it because it's true. As you are born again by the Holy Spirit, God has taken that old heart out and put a new heart in. And this heart of God in you is implanted by the Holy Spirit. That's the true you. So say to yourself today, I'm a man, I'm a woman after the heart of God. Amen. That's the truth. But we don't always live up to it. And David certainly didn't live up to it in this instance. We ask the question, how can this anointed, chosen vessel of the Lord, the young lad who grew up in the presence of God on the mountains, tending sheep just outside of Bethlehem, called by the power of God to attack Goliath and say, you come to me with sword and a javelin, I come to you in the name of the Lord God. The man, young boy of faith, anointed by God, chosen by the Holy Spirit to be the king of Israel, a man who, who was suffered in the wilderness on the run from Saul and yet was faithful to God in the secret place and when the time came for him to step into the public arena, there he was, a hero of God's people, anointed by the Spirit, anointed to be king over all Israel. Amazing story. How could that man stoop to this question? Not that we're going to point the finger at him. We're going to try and understand what was going on in his heart. What was going on in his heart in the events that led up to these, this terrible sin and succession of sins. And then also what was going on in his heart as God began to work in his heart to bring him back to himself. And so this is the question. What was happening in his interior world before he sinned leading up to that. Let's think about it for a while. At this point in David's life, he could honestly say, I've made it. He was certainly blessed, victorious in battle, prosperous at home and abroad, greatly loved, a true hero of, of the people. And also he had recently received a prophecy in which God promised to secure his future. 
You can read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where Nathan the prophet promises that David's house and David's kingdom shall be established forever. And he said, David, your throne shall be established forever. He had received this promise that God was never going to go back on. He was going to have a dynasty, God's covenant with David. This is where we get the phrase, the sure mercies of David. God in his mercy and grace had settled the future. It was secure. Now you and I are in a similar position, believe it or not. We are also blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. And if you go around greeting each other, how are you? I am blessed and highly favored. It's the truth. Your future is secure. In Christ, never will you taste the pains of death and hell. Jesus tasted death for you. Amen. Your future is secure. You are part of the kingdom of God forever and ever. Hallelujah. Celebrate it. David surely was. He was thinking, I've reached it. I've made it. I've attained to my destiny. I've reached my dreams. I've received my inheritance. My place in history is assured. And maybe he even went further than that and said, now I know God is on my side. Ah, faites attention, mes amis. Be careful when we start thinking like that. Maybe he also thought, nothing can go wrong now. It's plain sailing from here on in. My position is unassailable. Danger, danger signs. And we know that David was secure in God. Have a look at this, 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. After receiving that amazing prophecy from Nathan, David just receives it, and he goes to speak to the Lord. And it says, Then King David went in, into the tabernacle, into the tabernacle of God, and he sat before the Lord. If you know Old Testament well, you will know that this is a very, very unusual, if not unique position, physical position to adopt in the presence of the Lord. To sit. It means something. As David sat, he sat in the seat of accomplishment. The whole thing was a done deal. All he had to do now was rest in the Lord. And look at his wonderful attitude. He said, who am I, O Lord? He's humble. What is my house that you've brought me this far and give me this promise? He's humble, he's meek, he's rejoicing in God, he's accepting the goodness of God, he knows it's God's grace, he knows it's God's mercy. From its humble beginnings as a shepherd boy, God's hand had always been upon him. That was the source of his success, his prosperity. That he was the hero of the nation, beloved king. And forever, the kingdom of David would be seen as the golden age of Israel. Even messianic kingdom will be compared to the kingdom of David. In other words, the Davidic kingdom was a picture of the kingdom of Messiah, which we belong to. He sat before the Lord, maybe he said, I've made it. It's a done deal. Or so it all seemed from outside. What can go wrong? Maybe he had entered into a place of complacency. Let's have a look at it. What was going on in his heart? Yes, he was grateful at the goodness of God. But maybe there was something else working. I'm grateful, but you know I deserve this. I really do, I deserve this. I've been faithful to God. I've succeeded where others wouldn't have succeeded. I even refused to touch the Lord's anointed. 
when Saul was delivered into my hands, I said, no, no, no. Look, Lord, I've been faithful. I'm grateful. But, you know, somehow, maybe he began to think he was deserving. It's very difficult for us always to remember that there's only one reason why God blesses us, and that's nothing in us. It's always God's grace, God's mercy. And when things are going well, it's so easy for us to say, do you know what? This is how it should be. God owes it to me. He was relieved, no doubt, when you get to a place where you can sit and say, thank you, Jesus, it's done. There's a relief. But along that, alongside that, maybe there's a bit of smugness. Hmm, well, you too could be like me. Don't you wish you had a girlfriend like me or whatever else goes on in people's minds these days? He was secure, but the trouble is with security can come carelessness. I'm okay, it's secure, it's done. But then we can drop our guard and become careless. Maybe the stuff was beginning to happen inside. He was contented, there's no doubt about it. But maybe he was also feeling a bit entitled. Hmm, God is in his heaven and everything is right now in my world. That's how it should be. I'm entitled to this. Confident, but complacent. Those are the questions I'm asking. Let's have a look at the evidence. If you go back to the story of David's sin with Bathsheba, it begins by pointing out that at a time in the spring when most kings go to war, David stayed at home. And he sent the soldiers. He said, go on, you go out and fight the battle. I'm going to sit this one out. Why? Let's ask the question. Was he tired of fighting? Was he wanting a break? Did he feel entitled to a rest? I've done my bit. Uh, you know, we, we can get like that, can't we? We can get tired of the battle, don't you? Have you ever come to the place where you say, God, I just want a spiritual holiday. Please send the devil far away. Let him go on holiday somewhere else. I'll just go on holiday over here. Because the battle is constant. Every moment we battle against the world, the flesh, the devil. The pressure is constant. And I know times in my life when I just say, God, I want to opt out. Please, take the pressure off. Let's have a holiday. And one of the things that tires us is, is the kingdom of God's process of delayed gratification. You know, we have to take some stuff now knowing that we don't get everything now. So we take some negative stuff. We take the flack. We take the pressure because we know in the end it's going to be worth it. But we want some relief now. We want some immediate pleasure now. I remember when I was training as a dancer... One day when we were given extra special tuition, no day off, go in there and work hard. And one day, after a very short class, the ballet master said, I want you boys to finish now. Go home and polish brass. Find something to polish. He said, why? He said, you're struggling because you're not seeing the results of your labors. Go home, do something where you see instant results. It was a kind of psychology thing he was pulling on us. But we feel like that. We want to see something work now. God bless me now. (laughs) I want to see some results now. And because of that, sometimes we can take an, uh, an unauthorized break from the kingdom of God. Now, resting and breaking is very important if the, ta- the downtime that you spend is directed by God. 
But when you drop your guard at the same time, it becomes difficult. Maybe that's what was going on in David's life. We certainly know that at a certain point, he opened his eyes and turned them in the wrong direction. He allowed his eyes to wander. And with that, his mind and his imagination. And pretty soon, everything else followed. He was not in a good place. When he was away, opting out from the battle, staying at home, plenty of time on his hands. And as the saying goes, it's not a biblical saying, it's not from the Bible, but it's a good saying anyway, the devil finds work for idle hands to do. So there he is wandering, maybe not in a good place, wandering around, a bit bored. Uh, and so he go, I'm going to stretch my legs. He goes onto his rooftop terrace and stretches his legs, and he notices something. There is a beautiful woman bathing. They're not having a swim. She's performing her ablutions. And she's totally naked, and that catches his attention. Maybe he thought, oh, well, doesn't matter. I can keep looking. I'm above temptation. I can conquer cities, overcome armies. I can control this. Do you know, friends, your mind is the greatest battleground. And often it's directed by your eyes. Your vision determines everything. Did you know that? So, for example, if you fix your eyes on something, you start to let your imagination work. Where you put your eyes, your imagination follows. And where your imagination is let loose, energy follows. And after that energy, action takes place. That's why it's so important in the spiritual life to keep your eyes fixed on the right thing. And of course, it's Jesus, isn't it? We all see Jesus with an unveiled face and we behold the glory of the Lord. That's how we are being changed into his image. This works, and, and uh, advertisers know this very, very much. It's a little early in the year, but as it gets colder and autumn draws in and the snows come, soon you're going to be bombarded with thousands of images of summer paradises to get you to book your holiday next summer. Have you noticed that? And then when it's cold and foggy and, and raining and, and, and you... Have a look, and in the magazine, there it is. A tropical island paradise. Sun shining. Coconut palms floating in the breeze. And soon, you see yourself as your imagination is released, lying on a chaise lounge in front of the sun, drinking a, 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 a cocktail made from fruit and, and, and coconut. <laughs> coconut water. You see, they, they know that. And, and what happens is you see with your eyes, you start to imagine, energy is released, and you take action. That's why it's so important to put your eyes and your vision on the right thing. So he allowed his eyes to wander, big mistake. Secondly, he, I'm sure he began to rationalize his actions. Here's how I suppose it went on deep inside. I'm the king. Yes, I am. I deserve this. A bit of pleasure for my labors. I know what it's like to camp out with the armies, have to dig my own hole for my own latrine, eat food on the run. I've been faithful in battle, 
and God is on my side. Look, he's made me a king, and my dynasty is going to go on. He will understand this. And anyway, isn't God committed to my happiness? Isn't he committed to my fulfillment? And anyway, this lady, I can tell she wants me. Why else would she be bathing in full sight of my terrace rooftop? Maybe he said, I, I can actually control the situation. Anyway, nobody's going to find out about it. I am the king. I'm entitled to this, and I can control this, and I can get away with it. Why is that so relevant to us today? Because you and I suffer from the same king complex. Did you know that? I am the king of my own life. I can have what I want. That's at the heart of our sinful, fallen, fleshly human nature. It's I on the throne. So we need to pray for one another that we can have the cross affect us so much that we crucify that stuff. Take self off the throne and put Christ on the throne. Remember, especially for Christian leaders, because if anybody is tempted to have a king complex, is a successful, prominent Christian leader. This is one of our, well, I say there, because I'm not saying I'm successful and prominent, but this is one of their greatest temptations. To use their power to get what they want for themselves. And we've seen it, and, and we shouldn't be that surprised when great leaders fall through money, sex, and power. But it's not just those things. What about approval? What about recognition? Gratification can come in so many ways. And, and the temptation for Christian leaders is to use their public image, their personal charisma, and positional authority to get what they want for their own gratification. Certainly, this is really rings true as we examine our hearts today. So these are the, some of the things that were happening inside David that led him up to this sin committed adultery with this woman and made sure that her husband wouldn't find out about it, but she'd become pregnant, send him to the front line of battle, make sure he died, and not only did his, her husband die, but several other people died, covering up, you see. So adultery, murder, cover up, lies, deceit. All of that came from what was happening inside him. But that's not the end of the story, thank God. Because we have a wonderful, loving, gracious, merciful God who works his salvation and brings repentance to our hearts. What was happening in David's heart when the Spirit of God began to work and bring repentance and bring transformation? God worked, as he always does, from the inside out. Unfortunately, we often work from the outside in. We look at people's behavior, and it's judged okay, so we think there's nothing wrong. We look at people's behavior, and they do something wrong, and then they stop doing it, and we say, oh, they've repented. But you see, repentance is not just about the external actions. Of course, it includes that, but it's about what's going on in the heart. And I'm so glad that we've got this record in Psalm 51 because we see what was going on in the heart of David was really of God. The Spirit of God was working and bringing a real change in David's heart. And it began 
when Nathan confronted David with his sin. Nathan the prophet told a story about sheep and all that kind of stuff, and and David was outraged at this story, and he said, and, and here comes the punchline, Nathan said, you are the man. You're the one who's done this wrong. And verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, David replies to Nathan, and I like it. He doesn't try to weasel out of it, justify his actions, rationalize his behavior, look for mitigating circumstances. He comes right to it. I have sinned against the Lord. That's a good place to be. Very good place to be. Where we admit before God that we've sinned and blown it and that our sin is against him. Now, Nathan replies to David, I've got good news, David. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. That was music to David's ears. How wonderful and how merciful God is. And so we know from Psalm 51, which is David's psalm of repentance... He begins to come before God, depends on God. Oh God, forgive me, wash me. By your loving kindness, by your tender mercies, there's no reason, I've no argument in myself. Do it, God, because I deserve this. Do it, otherwise you're going to miss a good king. Do it, otherwise your purpose is going to be frustrated. Do it because of me. No, no, no. He said, God, forgive me. Take this away because of your mercy. Pleading anything other than the mercy of God means we're not truly broken and truly repentant before the Lord. And God says, I put away your sin. That's wonderful. So David was confronted by God's love, grace, and mercy. And that is the most devastatingly effective confrontation of all. Don't confront people with anger. Don't confront people with blame. Don't think that the only way you can get them to change is to make them feel guilty and moralize over their life. No, no, no. Pour down the grace and mercy of God in any situation. And it brings a tremendous transformation. God forgave David, hallelujah. But he didn't get away with it. That's what we're going to look at. Thank God that The moment you acknowledge your sin and own it before God, his forgiveness is instant and total. And that's drawn from the position that you have as righteous in the sight of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But don't think that grace is ever a cover-up for sin or that sin in your life, even as a New Testament believer, has no consequences. You're forgiven, but sin can still have consequences, and that is not against the teaching of grace. Here's how I put it when I tell, talk about this. This is the story I usually use. Let's suppose today that I have a son who's just turned 17, and this son has just passed his driving test. And so he comes home all excited with the certificate saying, I'm now uh, legally qualified to drive. Can I take your Jaguar out for a spin? So I say, son, you're not ready for that, but I've got a surprise for you. Here are keys to a 15-year-old Ford Escort. And it cost a few hundred, maybe a thousand euros or a thousand pounds. But there it is. That's how you begin. 
And my son is a bit disappointed. He says, can't I take the Jaguar? No, you're not ready. But anyway, son, go and enjoy yourself. So I go and sit down, have a cup of tea, and my son behind my back takes the keys to my Jaguar and takes it for a ride. An hour goes by, two hours go by, I'm a bit concerned, where's my son? Then I hear a knock at the door. And sure enough, there's a big, burly policeman and a sheepish boy next to him, my son. And then I see, just coming into the driveway, my Jaguar, all mangled up, being wrapped three times around a lamppost. <laughs> and the policeman's first question is, is this your son? <laughs> now, for a split second, what I want to say is, I've never seen him before in my life. <laughs> but do I do that? No, because he is my son. Whatever he's done, he is my son. Isn't that wonderful how God looks on you and me? Not to minimize the wrong, but when he sees us, even when we messed up, he still owns us as his sons and daughters. Hallelujah. That's the grace of God. But how many know that when I get that boy inside, <laughs> he and I are going to have a conversation? He's still my son. I love him. I won't reject him. But I won't ignore the fact that he needs to learn some lessons. Because my goal as a parent is not just to see that my son remains my son and always, always loved, but that he shapes character, accepts responsibility, and I'll have an issue. It's the same with God. He acknowledges us as sons, but he still wants to talk to us about stuff. And we should be willing to talk to him. In fact, this, the Lord's Prayer is all about that, or at least includes that. We begin, our Father in heaven. There's no doubt about it. He is our Father. But we come to him as our Father and say, hey, I, I just want you to know there's stuff that I'm involved with and I, I want to bring it to you. I want to own up to my sin. Forgive me my trespasses. It's not true that we might retain our position as sons, but that we might grow in sanctification and, and there's, there are consequences. Galatians 6 says, God is not mocked what you sow you reap. Hebrews 12 talks about God's chastening as a sign of his love and our legitimacy as sons. Because we are his sons, he doesn't let us off the hook. He chastens us, forgives us, but chastens us. And when David comes to pray, he acknowledges his guilt. He accepts God's mercy and rejoices in God's mercy, but he also surrenders himself to the consequences. God's discipline though at times may be hard, is always to be welcomed because he's a good God. Can you be in that place today where you say, God, I, I, I want you to deal gently with me and I want to learn my lesson as quickly as possible, but I trust you to chasten me in gentleness and love and whatever it takes, Lord, because what I want more than anything else is to be like you. I don't want to be in rebellion. 
And he, he, he accepts his guilt. He says in verses 3 to 4 of Psalm 51, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and none that's evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. What is he saying here? He's referring to the rest of Nathan's prophecy. Nathan said, God has forgiven you. You're not going to die. That's God's grace and forgiveness. But by the same spirit of grace, God pronounces his program of chastening. 2 Samuel 12, 10 to 15. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I'll raise up adversity against you from your own house and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. That neighbor turned out to be uh, his son Absalom. And he shall die with, lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. You've done this secretly, I'll do it openly. And so it goes on. The baby died, Absalom rebelled. David was shamed and humiliated publicly. David even had to flee for his life during his son's attempted coup against his own throne. He nearly lost everything, including the kingdom, but God spared his life. And in the end, the dynasty was preserved and David remained on the throne. But in this process, knowing what was going to happen, David said, you are right and just the way you speak and the way you judge. He was saying, God, I surrender myself to you, to your chastening, because I see what I've done is wrong and I want you to help me change. Amen. And in seeing the true nature of his sin, he goes to the root of it. When you think about it, he'd sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, Uriah's family, the other soldiers who died and their families. He'd sinned against Joab. Joab was uncontrollable, the general of the army who'd carried out David, David's orders. He'd sinned against... But right now, he's focusing on the root of sin which is always rebellion against God. He doesn't argue, he said, God, I know I did wrong, but I couldn't help it. I, I, I just slipped up. It was a moment of weakness. And anyway, I was tired, and haven't I done enough? And, and you know, I didn't like the way that person spoke to me, and, and the person next to me looked at me crooked, and they criticized me. I was discouraged and didn't do any of that. He said, I've sinned against you and you only. He acknowledged the true root of sin, which is rebellion against God. That's so healthy, because that's where the solution comes. But it went deeper than that, because not only did David recognize the true nature of his sin, he also recognized the true nature of his heart. And this is really, really good news for us all. And he recognized that his heart was sinful, and incapable of change. That's one of the most important lessons we could ever learn in our life of seeking to please God is that without God, we can't do it. That no good thing lives in us, in ourselves, of ourselves, in our flesh. Nothing good dwells there. Without Jesus, we can do nothing, but with him, we can do all things. That's what's so important. He recognized that there was a tendency in him 
an aspect of his nature from which there was no human means of escape, no discipline, no fasting, no prayer, no amount of, of, of effort on his part could ever change the nature of his flesh. And he meditates on this. Verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born in sin. It's as if it's a very harsh doctrine that we have as, as, as Christians that there is a fallen human nature on the inside of us. It is that fallen, sinful nature which is against God. The Bible talks about this developing as the flesh. The flesh hates God. The flesh rebels against God. The flesh puts self on the throne. The flesh crucifies Christ, but Christ crucifies the flesh. He says, and in sin my mother conceived me. This doesn't mean that David was born through immorality. It means that he was sinful not just from birth, but from conception. There in the womb, that thing conceived that would become David as we know, that was conceived carrying an anti-God virus which develops into an anti-God nature and takes specific shape later on in life where we with a bias against God will choose anything, everything other than God to get what we want. And we try to manage our lives by saying, what can I do to avoid pain and to get pleasure? That's what, that's what we like. And, and through various circumstances in life, shaping circumstances, we are for our particular Shape The shape of our particular flesh is formed. And, and that's why we can be saying and worshiping God, hallelujah, what a wonderful, yes, we worship you, God. But oh my God, that woman next to me, God, never. Lord, next time, please lead me to another seat or another church because she's, she's terrible. And we're doing this while we're worshiping. We're all the same, not necessarily in exactly the same detail, but it's amazing how that flesh still holds Onto us, and, and the process of sanctification is discovering the particular shape of our flesh and then abandoning it altogether. Not trying to change it. You can't change the flesh. Flesh cannot conquer flesh. Only the Spirit of God is powerful enough to give you what it takes to say no to the flesh, to crucify it, suppress it, oppress it, push it to one side, whatever picture you want to use. Only the Spirit of God. You can't do it yourself. Notice that when David begins to talk to God, never once does he say, God, I'm sorry, I'm going to do better next time. Sorry, God, if you forgive me this time, I promise I'll never do it again. And what's more than that, for the next 10 years, I'm going to double tithe to make it up to you. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to discipline myself more. All of these things, as good as they may sound, look at them as what they really are. It's flesh trying to conquer flesh. And the more you struggle in the flesh, the more in bondage you become. I don't know if you are a Tolkien fan, Lord of the Rings fan, but remember Frobo? The guy there, Frobo Baggins, and he gets trapped in a spider's web. 
frightening scene, and, and he struggles, struggles to set himself free. But the more he struggles, the more he is held tight. The worse it gets. That's where many of us are. We struggle and struggle, and, and the more we try, the worse it gets. We say, God, I'm never going to do this again, and we do it again. I'm, Lord, this morning, I'm, I'm, when I see that person, I'm going to smile and be sweet. Hello, how are you? I can't stand you. <laughs> and the more you promise yourself and promise God that you're going to be different, the more you tie yourself to being the same. There's an escape, but it's not through your self-effort. It's by acknowledging the corrupt nature of a human heart and saying that from conception and birth, nothing humanly speaking can set me free from this utter corruption and hopelessness of the fresh flesh and you come to true brokenness. We misunderstand that word brokenness. Psalm 51 verse 17 is the key verse of this psalm. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart. These, oh God, you will not despise. What's he talking about? He's saying, God, I've come to a place of brokenness. I've come to an end of myself, and I know there is nothing I can do to be different. It's got to be you or nothing. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, 24 to 25. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we stop the wretched man that I am, give that man some psychotherapy. He's obviously got very poor self-image. And the world tries to pump you up. Say, oh, you're not so bad. Even your friends. Well, you didn't mean to do it. She deserved it. You're not always like that. You'll do better next time. You're not so bad. We are pumping up the flesh. Help one another to come to the place where we say, there's nothing I can do. If God doesn't deliver me, I'm going to stay like this forever. The law of sin and death is going to work in me. So Paul cries out, oh, wretched man that I am. All the things that I want to do that are good, I don't do. All the things that are bad, I don't want to do. I do it. Paul's testimony there's theological debate about which part of his point in his life he's speaking about, but I tell you, there's no debate about this. Every single one of us knows exactly the same thing. We've been in that same place. And the way out is by saying, God, I can't do it. Wretched man that I am. That's, that's true brokenness. Who will deliver me? But straight away, thank God for verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then on into Romans chapter 8, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Let me just give this demonstration, if, if I may. If I take this tape, and I hope, hope it won't damage it, this uh, CD, I let it go, it falls to the ground. What's happening here? What law is happening? It's the law of gravity. Now, I'm going to say, you're not going to fall. I confess, I name it, I, I do anything, you're going to rise. <laughs> That's the nature of the flesh. There's only one escape from that law. And that is if there's another law that comes in. That's the only escape, the introduction of another law. And that's the law, the principle of the Spirit of God intervening in your life when everything within you is going to go the wrong way. And you know how to say, God, help me. And you don't try in your own strength, but you rest in the moving and the power of the Holy Spirit and the release of the Spirit. The Spirit comes in. And He alone 
does the work. Amen and amen. So David depended totally on God's grace. That's why he says in verse 10, Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart. No, I'm going to be different. I'm going to do something. I'm going to change. No, you created me a clean heart. You renew a steadfast spirit within me. It's not within my human resources to do it, but I want divine resources. That's why God is not looking for moral reformation, behavioral modification, but heart transformation that leads to real spiritual formation. The big change in David was on the inside. God always changes us from the inside out. So we see David came to that place of brokenness. Broken, contrite spirit. Not broken by the circumstances or broken by the consequences of sin. Broken by the pain. No. Broken because he knows that in his flesh there's no capacity to please God. And that's when God steps in. Isaiah found it as well. Woe is me! I'm undone. I live amongst the people of unclean lips and I myself of unclean lips. God dealt with it. Peter, after the miraculous catch of fish, he sees Jesus in his holiness and he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus himself taught this in the Sermon on the Mount, the first statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. People who know that they are totally bankrupt. There's nothing that they can do to get themselves saved. Nothing that they can do of themselves to please God or obey God. But the moment you acknowledge that, that brokenness leads to true repentance and the release of the Holy Spirit. I experienced something that for me stayed with me as an example, a physical example of the spiritual truth. Many years ago, not so many, but I was in Brazil with the family for Christmas, and I'd so arranged things that not far from where we were staying, there was a beautiful dive spot for scuba diving. And I think for two days, I managed to go and do that in Salvador, in the bay. And like any bay, you have to be careful of the currents. I mean, you dive in a strange place. They don't just give you your scuba equipment and throw you overboard and tell you to see you in half an hour. Somebody leads you, because they're aware of where the good things are to see and some of the hazards. And one of the hazards was, a, was this uh, current. And when you get caught in a strong current, you cannot fight it. There are ways in which you can avoid it and you get taught how to do this in case you're in difficulty, but in that current, you can't do anything. Anyway, she took us a bit too far in one direction and we caught the current and we tried to fight it and she realized there's no going back, we so have to go with that current. That current took us out to sea and very quickly back into the bay next door. I felt like somebody out of James Bond when we surfaced under the water midst of all these playing in families on holiday and there was I thought, who are these are they spies <laughs> then they picked us up and the next day we had a planning meeting and they said today we're not going to fight the current we are going to go with the current we're going to have a drift dive 
A drift dive is when you dive and flow with the current. It's the most beautiful dive. You don't have to make any effort at all. You just get carried along. And we went for two kilometers just being carried along. No effort, just enjoying the ride. The first part of the story is like when you and I try to fight that impossible current of the flesh in our own strength. It's impossible. The second part of the story is like when we say there's another current flowing, the current of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to take us along. And that's when some of these statements, which can be perhaps uh, not always accurate, but some of these statements at this point in teaching are very useful. Go with the flow. Let go and let God. Effortless holiness. Now, where that's dangerous, if you think you don't have to do anything, of course you must cooperate with the Holy Spirit. It's you who, through the Spirit, crucify the deeds of the flesh. But it's not your own energy. It's what Jesus meant when he says, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. You will find rest. It's easy. It's what John says when he says, God's commandments are not burdensome. And you see, this is the wonderful news, is that... Of course, beneath the surface, the flesh is working. And that's a strong current that when you're in that, it will always take you away from God. But when you go deeper with God, you find at levels of depth another current flowing, stronger and more powerful than the currents of the flesh. That's the flow of the Holy Spirit working on the inside of you, flowing out of your renewed new creation nature out of your inmost being, rivers of living water, currents. And when you descend, it's always at a level of depth. When you're diving in water, currents can be at any depth. But in the spirit, the deeper you go, the more favorable the current. Until you are abiding in the spirit, resting in the Holy Ghost, and find yourself being carried along to do things that would be utterly impossible in your natural strength. And in this way, you can overcome addictions. In this way, you can overcome sin and bondages in your life, not by you trying harder, praying more, fasting more, giving more money, getting more and more beat up by preachers and pastors and fellow colleagues. No, by resting in God and discovering in you, he's given you a new heart, a new spirit, and you flow with that. 